Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Park Street Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Pennington. We know that marketing trends in general are moving towards precision and personalization. But if you're one of the many brands reevaluating your marketing and communication strategy in the face of a pandemic, it helps if you start with macro consumer trends and home in from there. That's why today's episode features Rabobank beverage analyst Ricard Nesson talking about his most recent report that looks at how and why drinking behaviors across four major demographic groups in the U.S. are shifting. The report is called The American Alcohol Consumer is Changing. Is the industry ready to serve them? Ricard spent nearly a year researching and speaking with experts to draw up the conclusions in this report, and I got to say, it is excellent. I'll just leave you with the teaser quote from the report before we get into it. The shifting demographics of the alcohol consumer will challenge some of the strategies and tactics upon which alcohol brands have built their success. Oof. Let's hear more from Ricard. Ricard, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm I'm good. I, I have cold feet about this. Uh, when I say that, I mean I'm literally cold. I need to turn up the heat in my house. <laughs> well, you just went through a move, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I moved from uh, Brooklyn, New York to, to Maine. And to be clear, I'm not kicking out the locals. Uh, I, I, I grew up in Maine. And so it's more of a coming home than an invasion. Nice. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your background. I know you are a self-described research nerd, uh, which I am as well. So this should be a fun conversation. Yeah. um, Not a native to the the beverage industry, beverage alcohol industry. My background, as I I mentioned, was in academic research. Um, I I did my graduate research at Cornell, but but, uh, spent most of that time in Ethiopia uh, studying uh, entrepreneurship and supply chains, kind of with the goal of, of improving food security. Um, but moved to New York with my current wife, uh, my only wife, my lovely wife, uh, and uh, <laughs> ended up uh, finding a job with Rabobank. Uh, my qualifications for being a beverage expert was that I drank fancy coffee and made beer in my closet. Um, but since then, have really uh, enjoyed myself bringing the perspective uh, that, that I had with a, a master's degree in economics and academia to, to a world of, of business writing um, and e-commerce and wine, and, and in this case, a report about the shifting demographics of alcohol consumption. Yeah. And so, okay, let's touch on this report that you just put out that you, you know, really started the process in 2019, right? So uh, well over a year. Um to get to this point, it's called the American alcohol consumer is changing. And how would you sum it up in, you know, two sentences? Uh, I uh, so the, the the whole title is the American alcohol consumer is changing. Is the industry ready to serve them? Uh, and um, I think that pretty much sums it up. Uh, this uh, the people that the alcohol industry have traditionally marketed to are reducing their consumption while the groups that they've kind of systematically ignored uh, historically are increasing consumption. And that's just creating a lot of pressures for um, some serious changes, both within the talent at 
alcohol companies, uh, but also in the the brands and um, the people they speak to. If you want, I can um, talk a little bit about like what the origins of of writing the report because that's kind of a fun little story. I definitely want to talk about you know how you conducted it and what did you set out to do with it. I mean, it, it, like many of the the great works of art or uh, writing uh, in American history, it was an accident. Uh, so it really started, like I said, in 2019. It was like a period when um, the the media was really focused on non-alcoholic drinks and focusing a lot on the fact that Americans were drinking less, and in particular, blaming millennials for that. And, and as a millennial, I know my generations usually indiscriminately and unfairly blame for anything that older generations label as weird or different from what the way they did things. So I, I, I was kind of skeptical of that headline. Um, so I went in, uh, started looking for data. And what what you found was basically alcohol consumption on a per capita ethanol basis hasn't really changed in the last decade. Uh, so then I was like, wait, wait, um, that may be the case, but what about the, that, that question about millennials? Are millennials drinking less at least? Uh, and what I found was, was way crazier than I had expected. And, uh, you know, it's a really important um, point here. And, and, and this is something that I understand through, uh, my background, I think, in academic research is, you know, we say millennial, uh, but millennials aren't really just an age issue, right? Um, their behavior is influenced by a ton of things that uh, aren't age, such as uh, their uh, racial makeup, right? A, a much more uh, diverse group of people. Um, they are, uh, the d- distribution of educational attainment within the millennial generation is going to be very different, right? You think about who is going to college uh, with the silent generation. It was a lot of men and not a lot of women. And now 57% of recent college graduates are women. So now you say, okay, well, the millennials are just playing different in, in education, in terms of race uh, and uh, geographic distribution, uh, all those things. And so in this report, I just decided to say, okay, what what is changing? And, and really, if possible, what is the likely um, dimensions of identity uh, that uh, are driving that change. And, and the obvious uh, uh, takeaway from that is what what can brands and companies do about it? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get into that. I'm going to put a pin in what brands and companies can do about it. But I want to get more into um, so now the nitty gritty of like how you conducted it, because you have a lot of um, quotes in this report from people in the industry uh, and a lot of data. So kind of yeah. give me the breakdown of how you conducted it. Um, my secret desire um, has always been to get into journalism. Um, that's why I have a podcast. If you don't know, I have a podcast. It's called Liquid Assets. It's really good. Maybe not as good as the Park Street one, wow. wink, wink, but uh, it's pretty good, um, which you've been on, actually, Emily, right? I you have, know, so. yeah. Um, so, so you know, I, I do work for, for a bank. Um, I have a cool job, um, but I still like to pretend I'm a journalist sometimes, and you know, the, the scope of this report was, was really beyond my capabilities uh, to, to work on from my own knowledge. Uh, so after finding the data uh, that, that I wanted, I then presented it to uh, a dozen alcohol companies. I, I spoke to the trade groups and lobbying groups. 
I spoke to epidemiologists at uh, elite universities, and I spoke to government officials and then National Institute of Health and other places to really both validate what I'm finding, but also um, ask those important questions. What does it mean? What does it what, what does it do, uh, both from the perspective of public health, which I do discuss in the report, believe it or not, uh, and also in terms of, you know, strategy for alcohol companies to do this stuff ethically and uh, uh, effectively, right? Yeah. And I think that especially came into play uh, when we were talking about the, the uh, growing um, purchasing power of communities of color in beverage alcohol mm -hmm. and the importance of uh, speaking to people who have firsthand experience uh, dealing with, uh, you know, marketing within that in that area, uh, you know, I'm not able to speak to. Yeah, so let's get into the findings because it's really such a fascinating macro look at how each of the generations, sexes and racial groups are evolving and changing the way uh, they drink alcohol. So there's four main findings in this report. And let's touch on them all really quickly. And then we'll sort of dive into them one by one, if that sounds okay with you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I tried to look at the major identifiers across, uh, you know, each major demographic category that you would think of. And so uh, really, it's pretty simple. Older people drinking more, younger people drinking less. Uh, and when I say older, I mean 50 plus and, uh, you know, typically 25 and younger, including underage drinking, which has fallen off a cliff. Um, a big part is uh, population change. Uh, mm -hmm. People of color are a larger share of the population. Therefore, they're a larger share of ever alcohol consumption. Um, but women of color in particular are seeing uh, consumption behaviors change, not just a change in the share of, of um, uh, the population and really across the board, men are drinking less and women are drinking more. Uh, the, the, the overall kind of uh, theme would be kind of normalization uh, and moderation. So groups that have historically drunk a lot are drinking less and groups who historically didn't drink that much and weren't marketed to are drinking more. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with, I don't even want to take them in order. Let's start with which one was the most surprising to you? Uh, 2019 was the first year in American history that the majority of alcohol consumers, 26, under 26, uh, were women. Uh, so let's start there because uh, it's really across sex, uh, across uh, race and, and age groups, um, the change that we're seeing is being driven by women uh, for the most part. So women are drinking more, whether you're older, uh, whether you're uh, Latina or black. Uh, it just is uh, uh, one of the cases that that you see everywhere. Why are they drinking more? I mean, one. Uh, this is another theme that, that kind of comes up and again and again. Um, you know, alcohol is is kind of a privilege in society in a lot of ways, uh, and, and particularly groups that have not held uh, political or social power. Um, mm -hmm. have not had the, the liberty to, to openly drink alcohol. And that's been true for women. I, uh, you called me a research nerd. Uh, mm -hmm. The best evidence I have for that is that I uh, repeatedly went into the New York Times archive to find uh, quotes. And, uh, you know, as, as late as the 1970s, uh, it was legal for bars to ban women. Um, and so, you know, women, uh, one of the most important drivers of alcohol consumption is uh, being allowed to drink. 
so that's a big one. Uh, <laughs> no, but but uh, it's also uh, educational attainment, as I said, kind of top fifty-seven percent of women that uh, of, of recent college graduates are women, and college uh, uh, attendance and uh, graduation is uh, highly correlated with alcohol consumption. Um, the the number of women under twenty-six. Uh, that get married has uh, dropped by half. And women, when they get married, or women that get married, tend to drink less. Uh, and so that's another factor, is women are putting off, uh, you know, marrying and, and childbirth and other things that allows them to you know, live a lifestyle that allows them to drink. Um, and then I think there's some, uh, you know, particularly with uh, women of color, just a lot of uh, social and political Relevance, where you're seeing uh, people like Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion, uh, uh, Tiffany Haddish, just doing stuff that wasn't kind of, and I, I use this ironically, acceptable behavior for women. So I think there's a lot of uh, freedom and empowerment uh, that that women are uh, justly uh, having. Um, so yeah. You know, I remember when I was reading this report, you you mentioned that religion played into it. Um, a lot more. And I, and I think uh, people like communities of color. Right. Yeah. So I think as uh, the uh, levels of religiosity has fallen really across all uh, demographic groups, the acceptability of alcohol use within those communities uh, goes up, particularly for women. Um, but I, I think another really interesting thing here is, you know, I, I mentioned empowerment. Uh, one epidemiologist told me that, the highest changes in um, alcohol consumption are being seen among women with the most high-profile jobs, right? And th- those are women uh, in, in top corporate positions, women who are lawyers or in investment banking, and um, pointed to the importance of drinks as a social networking. Um, you know, th- as much as I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Some men wish they could get their wives to go out to the golf course. You know, it's, it's a pretty gendered sport. And, you know, uh, one of the ways that is kind of across the, the spectrum, it's easy way to connect and socialize and network is uh, asking somebody out for a cocktail. And so those are the kind of places where we're seeing a lot of the, the biggest change. And unfortunately, though, uh, this is one of my favorite lines from the report is that women's in Women in bars, um, unfortunately, has not translated to women in the boardrooms of alcohol. Yep. We're working on it, though. We're, uh, I would uh, encourage you to look at the, the leadership from any of the, the major alcohol companies, any of the major distributors. And what you're going to see is uh, yeah. remarkably uh, lack uh, of diversity, both in terms of gender, but, but particularly in terms of, of racial representation. What do you think an effective way or strategy? I mean, this is kind of a side sidebar, but um, I mean, what do you think is an effective way um, to increase diversity in the leadership? Right. Because there are a lot of movements um, for this. Right. There is women of the vine and spirits. There is WSWA has its own like women leadership council. You know, are those enough to get the wheels in motion and then we'll see it? few decades down the road um i you know this is not my career path right like i'm not a professional here uh, but i I have spoken to people about this issue a big one is data right you need to know what your workplace looks like you need to get the data on 
how well represented different groups are and try and fix mm -hmm. those deficiencies. You need to set real goals and put real um, resources behind it. Um, you know, the, the goal of this report, right? I, I think um, having more women in your leadership and rank and file and having more uh, people of color uh, is not only important uh, uh, in terms of ethics, which I think, I, I think obviously ethically correct sure. uh, to make sure you're represented. This report, one of the, the more explicit goals of it was to show that diversity is an economic imperative. And we can, we can get into that, uh, of course, but um, it's uh, going to be very, very, uh, just the, the young people are what companies like to market to. And 40% of young people are uh, people of color, uh, people under 25 and majority women. Um, so if you want to market to young people, you have to market to um, a group that's 60% uh, women of uh, people of color or, or women. Uh, that's that's it. And so if you don't do that, and if you don't have people of uh, diverse backgrounds on your team, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to be able to come up with the best messages. You're going to miss out on the best talent. And more than anything, you're not going to connect with the next generation of alcohol consumers. Yeah. I mean, I think as much as we'd like to think that big companies would do the ethical thing and that they never will they don't they, they don't, that it's not their job right their job is to their job is to be efficient yeah. and uh the most efficient thing is to generate diversity so i want to make sure that their economic goals are aligned with uh the ethical ones and this report should make it extremely clear that that's the case yeah Okay, let's move on to a couple uh, of the other points. Um, uh, the one that's interesting to me is that, you know, underage drinking has significantly decreased. Um, but your, your quote is here, nobody really knows why. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I, that's, that's kind of a cop-out, right? Um, all epidemiological research, all social science research is going to be caveated with, we don't know why, right? Causality is virtually impossible to uh, uh, create, especially when it's something that has to do with behavior, right? Um, so historically, for example, alcohol uh, got all this uh, praise as being heart healthy or something like that, right? A wine especially. But one of the things was that people were stopping, uh, people with health issues stopped drinking alcohol. Right. So then it looks like all the people who are not drinking alcohol are or the people who are drinking alcohol are healthier and therefore alcohol makes you healthier. The reality was that a bunch of people who can't drink because they would uh, it would interact with medications they're taking because they have some underlying health issue um, would abstain. And so then you saw this kind of um, effect that that was not real and ephemeral. So I think there's all these things with social sciences that make it hard to define that. But um, yeah. I'm sure your listeners don't give a crap about <laughs> about that. Um, <laughs> no, um, the the it's totally true. So so uh, about 10 years ago, uh, underage drinking uh, fell off a cliff. And uh, the uh, Interesting thing is that even as underage drinking has fallen off a cliff, the rates at which young people, especially girls, um, drink alone has tripled. Hmm. Uh, and so that's really perplexing uh, epidemiologists and health researchers because they see that, uh, you know, drinking alcohol um, before you're of age is, is really not good. But something else is also happening where, you know, young people are 
twice as likely to have a major depressive episode, those that drink are drinking alone. Um, and so, you know, they're really concerned. Uh, wow. And nobody really knows why that's happening. Though everyone I spoke to on the health side had a very strong suspicion of what it might be. Uh, were they all different? No, they were all the same. Oh, <laughs> are we going to talk about it or no? Well, I was, I was sitting. You have to ask the question. What? So, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the, no, no, it's good. I, I, no, I, I don't want to ramble on. Uh, the the um, suspicion, I think, um, and I'm not the right person to speak to. I suggest people uh, talk about this, but uh, with with somebody who knows better. But uh, what I kept hearing again and again is the the concern um, that young people are uh, not able to socialize that that they're um, doing so much socialization online and spending so much time on their phones that they actually prefer to talk online uh, instead of meeting up in person um, their parents have much better ways of uh, seeing what they're up to um, with uh, you know these pins and stuff and more than that uh, if you post a picture onto Facebook and you play on the chess team or you're a cheerleader uh, you know you uh, which would be a really interesting combo, to be honest. Uh, and your school sees that you've been drinking, you can get kicked off. So there are consequences uh, as well. So all those things combine to basically point to, to technology, um, both creating a mental health crisis as well as uh, making it much less likely young people are drinking um, and spending time with friends. Yeah. Huh. I mean, that does. Which I would put in order as bad, bad, bad. Uh, so, like, uh, Wait, no, bad, good, bad. So, so it's bad that they're, you know, having major depressive episodes. It's good they're drinking less, and it's bad that they're uh, not spending time with friends. Hmm. Did the uh, in- increasing legalization of marijuana play into it at all? Did experts? Absolutely not. Uh, uh, the, I, I spoke to one epidemiologist who um, I said, "Could you please tell me or confirm my suspicion that marijuana has nothing to do with this?" and uh, she laughed and said, of course not. Uh, there's this phenomenon in epidemiology called comorbidity, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically the likelihood of one um, kind of disease or illness, uh, illness is likely to uh, happen alongside another. And that's particularly true with substance use. So your likelihood of using marijuana is not as some people like share of throat is something they like to talk mm-hmm. about. It doesn't work that way. If you're like, uh, you know, uh, if you're smoking weed as a young person, that's likely an indication that you have some kind of uh, rebel in you. And therefore you're more likely to smoke or drink alcohol as well. Um, sure. So I don't buy that at all. And even if you just do a cursory look into the data, marijuana use has not gone up as alcohol use has has plummeted. So they are unrelated by virtue of very multiple things. So marijuana is not the causal element here. Okay. Well, and I, you know, I remember uh, several years ago when it was first legalized in Colorado. And I mean, I can't tell you how many articles and interviews we did uh, interviewing people about what does this mean for alcohol and how is it going? It was all we talked about for like a period of five years. So um, it, it's good to get some more indications that, you know, their marijuana is is not taking that much share from, if any, from alcohol. No, um, there's no indication that it's taking share from alcohol. Um, it's also important to remember that uh, 
again, this is my academic background coming in, but uh, when you think about like some individual event, right? Uh, it's not what people were doing before, it's what people are going to do or which people are going to do something different after, right? So historically, you saw like Cowan and company publish these reports that show, oh, people who drink beer mm -hmm. also smoke weed and therefore beer is going to be affected. Uh, that's not epidemiologically like have any foundations in truth. But more importantly, it doesn't have any kind of logical foundations in truth because if they're already drinking beer and they're already smoking marijuana, are they going to smoke more marijuana, right? Because after legalization, or is it the people who don't smoke weed, who have a job uh, and a family and who have risks that doesn't allow them to, to use marijuana um, for, for those purposes. And then you say, okay, well, who's going to change behavior. And to me, that indicates a much older person, um, somebody who's much later in life. And that ends up looking a lot like more like, like a wine drinker. So if you did say they're substitutes, it's probably going to be wine or spirits affected anyways. But then of course, that's, uh, not what I actually believe. I think it's mostly not a, not a problem at the, at the time. Um, and more than anything, uh, marijuana is not legal to consume on premise or anything like that. So it doesn't even necessarily have the same occasions. And I think a lot of the predictions that people made about marijuana didn't use marijuana enough to understand what it feels like or what it's like to, to get stoned or to eat marijuana. And all those experiences are different, I think, than alcohol in such a profound way that they're not even substitutes in terms of, of, of intoxication. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Okay, so let's transition into talking about one of the other findings, <laughs> that uh, older consumers are drinking more and trading up. Because this is this is also an oft overlooked opportunity. Yeah. Right. Because as you mentioned earlier, millennials are, you know, and Gen Z are the hot up and coming consumers. Everyone wants to target them but they're often forgetting the 65 and up population. Yeah. And uh, congratulations to all the uh, people born in uh, February 18th, 2000. Uh, happy 21st birthday. Uh, <laughs> that's always a, a line that makes people freak out a little bit. Uh, no, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, there is older people uh, or people over 50 only 14 years ago, uh, took about 29% of total alcohol consumption in the U.S. They were responsible about 29% of the drinks that people consume in the United States. Uh, today, it's about 40%. Um, and that's partially a consequence of population change that the boomer generation is really, really big. But it's also, uh, it's also a consequence of that younger generation drinking less and therefore their share is kind of reallotted to the other age groups. Uh, but I think most interestingly, uh, it is the current cohort of 50 plus consumers simply drink more than uh, uh, similarly aged people did in the past. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think, did you find that historically, I think marketers tend to think that they've already chosen their brands and they don't change and they don't um, experiment. Did you find this to be true? Um it is absolutely true. And interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, in the report, I say most brands don't direct marketing dollars towards consumers order for 45. And I went to a bunch of senior people at some of the world's largest alcohol companies. And they were like, 45? More like 35. 
we don't market to people <laughs> like over 30. What do you mean? And, and, and the, the logic behind that is that, uh, like you said, uh, younger people are going through life-changing events, um, you know, starting college or buying a house or uh, something like that. And they see those as opportunities to insert a brand. And then once you get the brand into the consumer's hands, it's a lot cheaper to retain them. And uh, basically you get a lot of time to sell that product to a person that's younger. Um, now, part of it's the fact that young people live longer and therefore you can like keep them as a little consumers for a long time. But as you said, the, the, the idea that older consumers thirst for exploration is atrophied. But, but in reality, if you look at the statistics and this data is from the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, the per capita spending on alcohol uh, has uh, doubled. Uh, in the last 15 years for, for people over 65. So either Caller Rossi is getting a lot more expensive or older people are exploring new brands. And uh, I would bet uh, every penny in my bank account, of which there's two, uh, that they are uh, trading up. So older consumers are alive. They're exploring things and brands have an opportunity to, to market to them. Uh, what that marketing look like is is where things get pretty interesting, I think. So uh, this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but now that you've released this report, what kind of responses are you getting, right? I'm imagining the people you you interviewed, right? And they say, we don't market to anyone over 35. Why should we? And then you come out with this report. Um, have you heard any you know, feedback and rethinking those strategies? Yeah, yeah. Um... I, I, I certainly think it's had a really big impact. Uh, the media has been mostly interested in this older people drinking story. Um, you know, we talk about the, the size of the boomer gener- generation all the time, right? Uh, the, the fact that they've, uh, uh, they're so big and it's going to affect uh, Social Security and other, uh, you know, uh, uh, policy issues, Um but I've gotten a lot of emails from some pretty powerful people saying, I've thought this a long time, right? So uh, a lot of, especially in like premium spirits, more than half of, of sales, uh, I think like 60% of sales go to people over 45, right? So if um, you actually care about these consumers, you'll market to them. Um, and and uh, I think what that marketing is, is like the thing I've heard over and over again in terms of feedback is, well, what, what do we, we can't put old people on our ads is, as Rodney Williams, the CEO of Belvedere, which I don't know, but I assume is a brand that over-indexes with older consumers, as with Stolichnaya or something like that. Um, you know, the uh, the uh, old people still want to feel young. You're not drinking a cocktail on the beach to, you know, you don't put imagery of a nursing home in it, do you? Um, I don't necessarily agree with that, though. I, I think uh, not not with nursing home, but but like I think that the fear is we don't want to look like a Lipitor or a Cialis commercial or a Visit just, Florida ad. Um, that's what I was just about to say. All those people look pretty happy. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I guess uh, I I wonder if this this uh, uh, reluctance to put old people in ads is going to be looked at um, kind of like the reluctance to put uh, uh, black people. Or Latinos in ads. Uh, I think America and the world has an unhealthy relationship with aging in general, and it would be great yeah. to, to turn some of that on its head. Uh, you know, George Clooney is a good example of of somebody who's gotten cachet, but 
there's all kinds of amazing attributes that older consumers have. But even if you don't want to put old people in your ad, uh, you know, you can do some other stuff. Maybe, you know, understanding that old people drink a lot of times in a month, but only have one drink, maybe explore smaller formats. You know, it would literally be for somebody over 65, uh, the recommended limit of alcohol is one drink per day as it's two drink per day per day for, for the average male. Um, so if it's only one drink per day, you can't give them a 9% double dry hopped IPA and a pounder can't, can you? So you have to maybe be more thoughtful about the way they drink and show as a company, as a brand that, that you're there to support them in their life uh, as their relationship with alcohol evolves. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me about this finding is it's almost the silent discovery because I think a couple of your other findings have movement behind them in culture and society, right? Especially like featuring more people of color in, you know, marketing and in boardrooms and the same with women, right? There are movements for those, but there's no movement uh, for more visibility to older people. It, no, I mean, not that I'm aware of. No, um, I mean, there, there, ageism is certainly an issue, um, but... It just so happens that people who are older <laughs> often are already in power, right? So it becomes harder to yeah. say, you know, what, what do you do? It just, I think there's this um, aspect of it, which I think is in popular culture um, and media in particular, where they're, they're at a distinct disadvantage um, in terms of, uh, as you like the, the leading roles for women, right? In in movies is are not available, um, but to me, it's uh, I think it's kind of important to, to, to kind of ask why. And, and for me, uh, there's a lot of attributes with with older consumers, like uh, the, the most interesting man in the world is a good example, um, you know, as, as like, hey, I'm passing this knowledge to you. And, uh, you know, that appeals to older people, but also is like, oh, uh, a way to to influence younger people as well, I think. All right. And then I know we sort of touched on, um, I think kind of through a lot of these, we touched on, um, you know, increasing inclusivity uh, in the alcohol industry. But I want to, you know, specifically go back to it and focus on, you know, your findings about diversity in the industry and um, in the consumers. So I'm going to kind of create a what I hope is a decent bridge between what we just <laughs> talked about you. and what we're talking about now. So, so especially for things like wine or spirits, I think a lot of the decline in some of these legacy brands is really their consumers are dying, literally, right? Uh, you are, you know, the, the Tito's is as successful with young people uh, simply because it's all the Stolichnaya drinkers are dying off um, or at least not able to drink like they used to or not able to drink because of health issues or whatever. Um, and for wine, you've seen 25 years of steady growth that has started to flatten out. And if you look at the demographics, you end up seeing that all these boomers and older Gen, older Gen Xers are kind of reaching their peak mm-hmm. spending power. And as that generation disappears, if you will, uh, wine is probably inevitably going to see volumes and sales start to decline. Um, and I, I pretty sure, uh, that that means that companies that are 
part of these legacy spirits brands, part of the wine industry, are going to have to connect with younger people. And as I said earlier, if you have to connect with younger people, that means you have to connect with black people. It means you have to connect with Latino populations. It means you need to be inviting and uh, empathetic with women uh, in every way. And uh, you said something interesting. You said that uh, you know it's important to feature them in advertising and within your leadership and with your rank, rank and file. Um, I think it takes a lot more than just putting somebody in your ad. Um, and there's plenty of examples where uh, companies try to walk the walk without or talk the talk <laughs> without walking the walk and ended up falling pretty hard on their face. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, yeah. I think it's also kind of shocking to me how many people do try to market and have their messaging include or speak to people of color, but no one in their company was like a person of color to evaluate it and tell them that it was the wrong decision. I mean, the example I used in the report was Heineken. Um, they're, uh, they did an ad uh, which Chancellor Amper uh, accused as being intentionally racist. I don't think that's the point. I think uh, Heineken's response was, "We didn't, we don't think it's racist, but we'll take it down because some people were offended by it." Which I think is again not the way I would have responded. Uh, but basically, the ad showed a white bartender noticing a very hot and sweaty-looking light-skinned woman on the other side of the table and slide a beer over to her. Uh, the beer passes. Uh, a black model, uh, a black performer as reggae music plays over the background. Uh, another black person is is seen. The beer passes them and ends it up in the hands of this light-skinned woman. And the screen says, sometimes lighter is better. Uh, and nobody, uh, you know, you think about how many people on the marketing team, uh, the brand team, the agency that created the ad, the agency that reviewed the ad, legal uh, how many people saw that? And nobody said, oh, by the way, this is not appropriate to, to put out in, in, in at least the U.S. market, um, any market really. So what that says to me is people want to get the cash, uh, the, the, the cultural cachet, the coolness uh, that the black community has um, in particular or the Latino community has, uh, but that they're not really willing to invest behind it in terms of their own company. And it become very obvious, I think, to consumers when you don't do that. Uh, yeah, I yeah. agree. Um, okay, before I transition into um, a bit of conversation about, you know, what alcohol brand owners should take away from this report, are there any other highlights that we want to hit? Um, no, yeah, I think it's um, really important to talk about the fact that um, having a more diverse workforce isn't just about avoiding marketing snafus, right? I think it's really wrong to frame this around, oh, we, we, you know, we as white people don't want to um, offend anybody. So now that's why we need to be diverse. And the, the, no, no, it's, that's just the wrong approach. Um, I uh, use the example of Black Panther, uh, which the, the director, uh, Ryan Coogler said, I made for people that look like me and the people I grew up with. That movie was the second highest grossing movie of all time, the highest grossing movie that Marvel ever created when it was released. And the point is, is that speaking directly to uh, communities of color, um, if you are speaking directly to Latinos, then speak directly to Latinos or whatever with people on your team that are Latinos, right? That 
is going to influence, uh, uh, you're going to discover there's a lot of people that also are into that. And you saw that with music, right? You know, the, the reggaeton is the musical phenomenon within the Latino community that is mm-hmm. now everywhere. It's in rap music, it's in, it's in pop, it's everywhere. And guess what? White people lap it up. They love it. So the, the, the idea, I guess, here is that, you know, by addressing the needs of these groups that you've, as an organization or as an industry, have ignored for decades. Uh, Cristal in 2006 was saying, you know, what, we can't stop people from buying our products uh, when referring to, to, to their associations with black culture. Like that has changed completely. And now what's cool is less defined by race, is less limited by, by gender. It's really important that, to, to understand that helping or serving consumers uh, of any kind are probably going to unlock opportunities with consumers you thought you were serving um, and, and you didn't know needed yeah. something new. But yeah, you know what? Okay, one thing I missed that that I wanted to talk about was there's this part in here about, um, and if I have to reintegrate it into earlier in the conversation, um, no, but you had a you had a, a question about do demographics help explain why seltzer hit the sweet spot, um, which I I think is a, a really interesting topic. Tell me more. I I'll tell you more. Uh, yeah, the, the thing with seltzer is that, uh, you know, whether it was decades of sexist advertising or the actual flavor of beer uh, that put a bad taste in their mouth, uh, it, beer was just never the drink of choice among women. And, and so you saw all these women, as I said, uh, the majority of alcohol drinkers under 26 are women. Um, but there was no sessionable portable drink at their disposal, something you can bring to the beach. Um, and uh, unless you want to count uh, Alco pops and I, I'm not sure about you, but I uh, certainly don't respect. Uh, no, that's not the right thing. I don't want to yuck anybody's yum here, but, but I've never thought it was particularly cool to be holding a, or I wouldn't be caught holding a, a Smirnoff ice or something at a party. Uh, so I think there was this this need for something that you could drink at the beach and whatever. And it turns out that uh, when hard seltzers came onto the scene, uh, without all the sexist baggage, um, without the that is sparkling, light, and, and low carb, uh, you know, it's not a surprise that women went crazy about it. I think that the, the more fascinating thing and speaking to what we were just talking about uh, is that it turned out like men really wanted it too. Uh, so uh, that's uh, speaks to the fact that, you know, you create something that was really popular with women and it's just like, Oh, men are just as likely as a woman to be on a diet. Uh, okay. Then, then therefore like, uh, you know, maybe they want locale stuff as well. Um, so uh it has been really fascinating. I think that's the most convincing kind of story behind why it's gained so much popularity. Yeah. Oh, I love the term uh, that it came, you know, it was an innovation without sexist baggage. I think yeah. that's like perfectly describes it, right? It is technically a beer category, but it came yeah. in with a, you know, tabula rasa. Um, and now we're seeing what what naturally happens, I guess. I also think that the hard seltzer woke a lot of people up to that, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, wait, women are drinking this and it's not pink. Oh, wait, 
do women not think it's necessary? Like, is pink not just the only thing that women want? And like, again, this is because I, you know, it's even if you do have women in the in in your marketing team, how always do they have the freedom to do what they think is right? Yeah. So, okay. So I know we're running short on time. So I want to ask, you know, what I think is probably one of the most important questions for our listeners. How does this affect their business directly? Right. Because they're busy with, you know, staying afloat (laughs) through COVID. They're busy, um, you know, being understaffed and wearing all sorts of different hats. How do we connect this data with their future and their business? I if you care about the way your brand looks and marketing, is that not part of your core responsibility? I mean, I'm not trying to belittle how hard they are working, but this is not a matter of cursory, like, oh, I need to get this done in it, like, after I get this other. This is fundamental to creating your brand's future success. So it's not, it is as simple as saying, this is important, putting some goals around it and saying, I want to focus on this. That means, you know, having a strategy session and speaking to your leadership and saying, okay, you know, do we want to go after older consumers? Okay. What does that look like? Do we want to, you know, add, put like, stop using, you know, don't put, I, I, I genuinely, it's something that you need to do on a personal level, but, yeah. you know, thinking of how can I do this? And I think that's going to be, um, you know, that's what's helpful about a lot of this demographic stuff. And I should say demographics aren't destiny. Your consumer may be old, but they like beer and cheap beer or something like that. Uh, so that's not the point. I think the point is just trying to be really thoughtful and empathetic. And it's a lot easy to, easier to be thoughtful and empathetic when um, you share experiences with the people who are trying to sell stuff to you. Yeah. Well, you know, and the reason I ask this question is from, you know, just my in my decade of experience in the alcohol industry, I've worked with a lot of small brands. And I think explaining the importance of why you should keep up with the news in the industry Mm -hmm. and like sort of getting them to look outside their own little bubble of their distillery. Mm -hmm. Very challenging um, because they are so overworked and are wearing so many hats. Yeah, so so I think it can be very intimidating to think, oh, you know, these super big corporations have so much more data than I do, right? And that's one of the reasons I made this report public is because I think that this is an important enough topic to make it available to everybody. So it is free and you can access it for free. Um, and it's all publicly available data, right? Um, of course, you don't have the time to spend, you know, months doing the interviews and, and other things. But I think that the key here is um, you don't necessarily need great data to come up with great ideas on how to get your brand into to the hands of consumers, right? I think a lot of craft people tend to do what my boss says is push a string. You can't push a string. You can't just have great product. You need to have great demand for that product, um, And it really comes down to thinking about what is your consumer doing and how can I empathize through my personal experiences to say, oh, what would I do in this situation, right? What's important to me? How do I want to get this product? How do I want it to look? What kind of things are I doing in my day-to-day that this brand is speaking to me about, right? Um, And so I think that's really an important way to just 
think constantly about your consumer, what they want. And some of these ideas will just kind of come out and be kind of obvious, but you'll never come up with an innovative marketing plan if you're not thinking about who's using your product and what their life is like and how your product fits into it. Perfect. All right. Well, then let's wrap up by telling the people where they can find more from Rabobank. We are definitely going to put, I'll remind you, the title of this report that we're talking about today is The American Alcohol Consumer is Changing. Is the industry ready to serve them? Tell them where they can find more about your work and Liquid Assets, your podcast. I mean, after listening to this, uh, are you sure they want to? Yes. Okay. Okay. If, 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 if you haven't had enough of me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at beverage podcast is my handle. Um, you can find my research at, uh, uh, Rabobank, uh, and it's a uh, research.rabobank.com. Um, and, uh, reach out. You can uh, find me on the LinkedIn. If you're scared of Twitter because it's too toxic, uh, find me any way you can and I'll respond. I promise. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing the fruits of your labor. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. I hope it was, uh, I hope it wasn't too rambly rambly. I, I, I get very excited to talk about this stuff. Hi everyone. It's Emily again. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're enjoying the Park Street Insider podcast, don't forget to rate us and leave a good review. If you're interested in getting involved in Park Street University, email us at psu at parkstreet.com. Thanks a lot.